Before I start in uh, this morning, uh, mea culpa from last week, uh, while speaking about open worship, I made a flippant off-the-cuff remark about uh, some of our sisters sharing being more emotional than maybe the guys, and it was an attempt at humor, and a brother was kind enough to call me on it and say, hey, maybe that had an unintended consequence. So ladies... Uh, serious apologies if you felt offended or sort of put back in any way at all. Uh, we were talking about the open worship forum and we, re- and we were talking about the priesthood of all believers and the ability to come together as a group and share praise and thanks to God. And so I just want to make sure nothing that I said intentionally, unintentionally, in humor or otherwise comes across in a way that would make you shrink at all from being able to declare praise publicly. So my apologies sincerely from last week. Let me too, let me just pray again uh, for just a second. Lord, as we look in your word this morning, I'm just uh, struck again that it is the truth that you've given us that is appropriate and helpful, exhorting and encouraging, and that's able to speak to us right where we live today. And Father, all of us are coming from different circumstances this morning. We have different things on our plate and on our mind. And yet I know that you can speak to each and every one of us from the truth of your word this morning. Ask that you'd help us to have ears open to hear what you have for us. Praying, Father, that each one of us leaves having heard from you just those things you mean for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll be in Genesis 18 this morning, continuing the study there, Abraham and Sarah's story. Before I do, quickly mention a verse out of Exodus 23, verse 9. When God gave Israel the law, of course, there's all kinds of statements he says about things that they are to do or not to do. One of the things he said, Exodus 23, 9, you shall not oppress a stranger since you yourselves know the feeling of a stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. Uh, the scriptures and the whole culture of the Middle East has a lot to say and put a, put a high value on the way you treated others and this, this thought about how you treated strangers. We sometimes talk about how we treat the least among us. This sort of had an application in the ancient world towards strangers, those who were in a place that wasn't their home and how you treated them was very important. And so God rem- reminds Israel as they're going into the land of promise telling them, hey, you'll have people coming through in your time here in your homeland, and I want you to remember that what it felt like when you lived in Egypt, it wasn't your home, and what that looked like and what it felt like, and I want that to inform the way you treat the strangers in your midst. And you'll see this comes up in Genesis 18 this morning. How do we treat the strangers among us? It's a huge theme in the Scriptures and an important one in the text this morning. We'll read... Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15, and then break that apart in a couple different ways. Now, the Lord, and if your Bible has Lord in all caps, that means that in Hebrew it would be Yahweh, and this is making sure that the first people to read this story, the Jews, in their covenant with God, knew that the God of their covenant was the one that's being spoken of here with their father Abraham back several hundred years earlier. So Yahweh, or the Lord, appeared to him, Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. And if you remember way back in chapter 13, this is the same place Abraham and his group had been before. While he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day, 
When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, So do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender choice calf and gave to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? He said there, in the tent. He said, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear when I am old? Is anything too difficult for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah denied, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Now, this story follows up apparently very quickly after chapter 17. You remember just a few weeks back, God visited Abraham and Sarah, and he told them sort of the same message then. Hey, you're going to have a son. And Abraham has a response very similar to Sarah's, a little different, which we'll talk about in a minute. But this visit about the same time, because in both texts it says about this time next year. So we know there can't be very many days, weeks, or months between these two visits. This one appears to be primarily, though, for Sarah's benefit. And it's interesting, this is kind of like a play. Sarah's not on the stage. She's off stage. And sort of all we hear is her laughter and her words, but you never see her. And yet God's presence and the message given apparently is for Sarah's benefit. Looking at verses 1 through 8 before we go on and thinking about strangers and hospitality, we're going to hit the road tomorrow. Uh, we're going up to Colorado for... Uh, uh, a break that I relish the thought of, get up in the mountains in some cool weather. And, you know, I think nothing of climbing in the truck and driving, you know, 600 miles or so because I know all along the way I've got gas stations, hotels, motels, pit stops, you know, whatever I need, I've got it on the way. And so we'll probably make a couple stops. Life is good and it's easy. You'll fill up, etc. You know, when you traveled in the time of the Bible stories in Abe's day, this simply was not the case. You might, if you were on a major trade route, you might have an inn or something like that that you could stop at a major point and get lodging or food, water, whatever for you and your animals. If you were on the back backwoods, if you were on the back ways, this stuff just didn't exist. And it's one of the reasons why hospitality was so highly valued in the ancient culture because you depended on it. You needed it. If you were traveling in Abram's neck of the woods... The only place you might be able to get put up for the night 
or get food or water for you or for your animals would be at someone's house. And so hospitality looms large in these stories and in these days. I'm on the road and I am dependent on others' kindness to provide for my needs. I may not have relatives along the way. There's no 7-Elevens. There's no Ramada Inns unless I'm on a major trade route. The willingness of other people to show hospitality to me becomes a very, very big issue. When you read Hebrews 13, verses 1 and 2, sorry, I'm jumping there very briefly. If you have your study sheet, you can follow along with these in order, though. Hebrews 13, it's sort of winding down an epistle written by a Christian we're not sure of to the early church. And as he's winding down and just giving some general words, he says, Let love of the brethren continue. Continue to love the other Christians. And, verse 2, And don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Now we assume that Genesis 18 is the reference to Hebrews 13. That this story we're reading this morning is what's being referred to in Hebrews a couple thousand years later. When Christians are told to show hospitality, it's a reference back to Abraham in this story we're in this morning. And look at Abraham's hospitality. There are some elements of this story that are to me humorous. And, and what Abraham's hospitality looked like to me is humorous. So going back into Genesis 18, Abraham ran. He ran to greet his visitors. Guys, this, he's 99 years old. So just imagine in your mind, he's sitting in the tent, it's hot, you're avoiding the sun, the direct sun. This 99-year-old, I would say, stop, slow down. Don't be in such a hurry to come help me out. You know, I'd be afraid he's tripping and falling down and hurting himself. He's 99 and he gets up and jets out to meet his visitors. He washes their feet and he gives them a place to meet. Now, you know, in biblical days, the person who washed feet, he was the lowest of the household servants. And here's Abram running out to his visitors and offering to wash their feet, and he gives them a place to rest in the shade of a tree. He calls his visitors Lord, and he calls himself their servant. Now, remember, this guy, he's a prince in the Middle East. He has lots and lots of servants and he has lots and lots of wealth. And yet here he is when these visitors appear, taking the form of the lowest servant of all, making sure their needs are taken care of, calling them lords and himself their servant. Most commentators think that Abraham knew in short order that this wasn't just three regular guys, that this was the Lord. And there's a change back and forth between the singular and the plural, his term Lord, So we think he knew in fairly short order, but it's not clear that this was immediate. So whether he knew immediately that this was the Lord or not, his example of hospitality still holds. So he takes the place of a servant. He bowed to them, this exalted father. You remember God said, I'm going to call you Abraham. You're, you're an exalted father. You'll be the father of nations. He bows down to his guests. He prepares the best food he had. It's, it's interesting. He says, hey guys, I'll get you a little piece of bread. Well, when he talks to Sarah, this little piece of bread, it's like six quarts of, uh, of flour. They, they, they went to the bakery. They made a lot of bread. And then they serve the best food they've got. So he says, hey, I'll get you a little bread. And then he serves them the best feast he's got. And then he doesn't eat with them, but he waits on them 
like a household servant. He stands there and he just waits on them, just like a servant. So you see in Abraham this exemplary example of hospitality. Three strangers, the heat of the day, standing out in the sun, and he jumps up, jets out, takes care of them, taking the place of the servant, the lowliest at that. Now, we live in a time and a day, it's so different. Culturally, it's different. Um, Just technology is different. We tend not to rely on others. I confess, you know, I've got my credit card in my pocket. I've got my plans made. I'm good to go. If I needed to rely on somebody else, I would really feel like naked and exposed. This is just the times we live in. And also, we have uh, fears, many of which are legitimate. Um, Should I bring a stranger, for instance, into my home? And if I do, am I putting my family in a risk that isn't appropriate? Uh, I used to pick up hitchhikers on the road so that I could share the gospel with them. And I would bring them home once in a while for lunch. And and Kathy's like, what are you thinking, you know? Who are these guys? But I thought, you know, I I have the opportunity. They're a captive audience. I pick them up. They got to listen, you know, so I'm taking them along down the road. But there's wisdom issues to consider for sure. You know, in the strangers that we entertain and show hospitality to. When? What does that look like? I don't mean to, to say there aren't issues for discernment along this line. But just related to, in our time, in our culture, being willing to put ourselves out for others to show them hospitality and, their, and to meet their needs is no small thing. And I'm struck by a couple of New Testament passages that bring up this same theme. In Matthew 25, and I want to avoid all the prophetic elements of this passage, I think this is a future uh, text. It's talking about days yet to come. When Jesus the Messiah returns to the earth to set up his kingdom and he divides the people before him like sheep and goats and he says to the sheep on his right side, Matthew 25, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry and you gave me to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. In this list of sort of the example of the faith, the faith in action of those who are going to enter Christ's reign, His kingdom, showing hospitality becomes one of those acid tests, if you will, of the living faith of the people that enter His kingdom. So these people responding to Christ say, well, Lord, you know, when did this happen? We don't remember seeing you. You know, you have a face we'd recognize. You know, like the sun, hair white as wool, you know, Jesus in his glory. Don't recognize you from the past. And Jesus' response, the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least you did it to me. So in this future day, when Jesus is instituting his kingdom, One of the key examples of a living faith of those who enter the kingdom is that they simply showed hospitality to strangers. They were willing to put themselves out for others. And as I understand it prophetically, the willingness to put yourself out for others in the context of Matthew 24 and 25 could, could bring very severe repercussions upon you if you were aiding those who needed it the most. Another passage in the New Testament in Luke 7 shows the same thing. 
Again, these passages aren't specifically about hospitality, but hospitality comes up in them. And if you remember this story, a Pharisee has invited Jesus to his house for a meal. And I'm sure he's sounding them out and trying to get, get the size of praise Jesus. Who is this guy and where does all this go? And a woman comes in and everyone there knows this gal. And they, they know she's, depending on your translation, she's an immoral woman. She's a sinner. She has a reputation. It's not a good one. And so she comes in and she is weeping at Jesus' feet and washing his feet with her hair and her tears. And the, the guy standing there think, if this guy was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of a woman that is. He would not allow this to go on. And so Jesus' response is, turning to the woman, he said to Simon the Pharisee, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. Um, he failed at any test of, of simple hospitality. This very religious leader. No water for my feet. This was just the most common form of courtesy. She has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, no kiss of friendship, no welcome. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. Again, when Jesus is bringing it, this is a passage about forgiveness. But in this passage about forgiveness, this real vital faith is exemplified by hospitality, by the way she treated Jesus. She's not even the host. And yet Jesus says, this woman has shown me more hospitality and kindness than you, the host, from whom one would normally expect it. Hospitality. Very highly prized in the ancient Middle East and in the scriptures in general. Hospitality, kindness to strangers, the willingness to put out for someone else in Christ's name is the mark of a true believer, the one who shares the faith of Abraham. Uh, ask yourself, just on this whole deal, are you, are you given to hospitality to others, to strangers? Great. How about hospitality to people you know? That'd be a good place to start. Unlikely that we'll be hospitable to others if we're not hospitable to those close to us, right? You know, love your neighbor is the second great commandment. You remember when Jesus said, what's the great commandment? Love God first. He's not asked for it, but he gives it. And love your neighbor as yourself. And by the way, if you read the Old Testament, you will see that Israel and Judah are often indicted for their sins. And it's often idolatry. Idolatry was a huge issue in their day. But guys, I'll tell you, almost equally, I've done my own studies, I've counted them up, almost equally you'll see God's people indicted for the sins they committed by omission and commission for and towards each other. For and towards each other. Their refusal to help those who needed help, taking advantage of those who were the least powerful, not doing the things God had called them to. This, is, this runs throughout the Old Testament when God indicts His people. They failed to love each other. They didn't just fail to love God. They failed to love each other. And this was hugely important to God. You know if you're a parent, if your kids want to be close to you, but be mean to their sibling, how do you feel about that? You don't have the warm fuzzies for the one child who's trying to abuse another sibling but wants to be close to you. It just does not watch. And God the Father says the same kind of priorities He has in the same ways.
That he wants us to show love to each other, hospitality to each other. I wonder, and I've thought of specific incidences in my own life. I wonder how many angels I've entertained, Hebrews 13, and I wonder how many angels I've turned away. And frankly, beyond that, you know, uh, angel sounds like a good thing. We entertained angels. <laughs> cool. Um, <clears throat> Psalm 8 says that men were made a little lower than the angels, but made in the image of God. And it's frankly more important that we entertain strangers that are human than that we entertain angels who are on some divine mission. They don't need it. They certainly don't need it like the people around us. As I was uh, thinking about this theme and and preparing for this morning, uh, one of the things that struck me was this. I've read church growth stuff, church growth resources, books, conferences, etc. for about 15 years or so. And, you know, in the West, we love science, we love technology, we break things down, we figure them out, we put them together, we can tell you how to be successful, we can measure it, etc. Well, all of that, of course, is brought to bear on church life and spiritual life. So there's a whole science, of course, to how to start a church, grow a church, etc. Who's your market? How do you advertise to them? What what goods and, and products and services are you offering them? It's become a business model. I just read a book uh, whose title escapes me. This guy hired unbelievers. This sounds novel, and I'm not knocking it for that. Hired unbelievers to come into the church, sit in on their church, take surveys, and tell them what was wrong with their service. Unbelievers. With the thought being that we want to be appropriate. We want to speak to people who aren't Christians. And sort of models of ministry aside... As I'm reading this book and as I'm skimming these chapters, I'm thinking, you know, I could, I could write this book by just saying, love your neighbor as yourself. How is this for a church growth policy? Love your neighbor as yourself. Show hospitality to strangers. Sean sent uh, other guys in the church an article from the Wall Street Journal a week or two ago about a book that just came out. And this is a young guy in his 20s writing a book. And it's basically about how the church is trying to sell itself. Uh, you could say prostitute itself. I think that could be accurate as well. In order to reach more people, to grow numerically. And this young Christian author says, basically, his, his conclusion in the article is, we don't want more of the same. In other words, the churches are trying to look like the culture so that people in the culture will think they're of value, they're hip, and they're with it. And this guy's conclusion is, we don't need more of the same. We live in a shallow, sex-drenched culture. It's not real. What we want is reality. So if the church isn't offering reality, he's like, we don't need it. And we don't want it. And as I'm reading the church growth stuff, I'm thinking about Abraham. Abraham runs out to some strangers and offers them hospitality. And Jesus uses hospitality as one of the key markers of what an Abraham kind of faith at work looks like. And Hebrews 13 calls Christians like you and I to the same kind of hospitality. And it's uncomfortable and you put yourself out and you get burned sometimes and I understand all of this. And yet the call is clear. And Abraham is not just the example of faith for us. He's the key example of hospitality as well. This rich, wealthy guy could have sat on his duff and told the servants to go out and do something, he jumps up, he's the one showing hospitality to strangers. It's great. We can take a clue from old Father Abe, not just on faith, 
but on hospitality and the willingness to put ourselves out for others, serving strangers and entertaining angels. It'd be unfair if we didn't turn to Sarah in this passage, verses 9 through 15. <clears throat> I think this whole visit actually is for her benefit. The Lord will communicate some other things to Abraham we'll look at next time, but this trip to the tent now I think is really for Sarah's benefit. So Abraham's shown this extravagant hospitality. Again, Sarah's not even in the picture. You can't see her, but we know she's there. She's behind the, the uh, tent, and she's listening to the conversation of uh, these strangers. And if you remember, back in chapter 17, God says sort of the same things to Abram. Abram laughs. We sort of did a mini-study, and we said, it looked like he just doesn't believe it. But that, biblically, we had to conclude that there, there was some element of incredulity in Abram's response, but it wasn't unbelief for a number of reasons. Romans uh, 4 was the key one. Romans 4 and 5, talking about the faith of Abraham, was one of the key reasons. We said, well, some incredulity, but not a lack of belief or faith. Here, in chapter 18, God gives Sarah a chance to respond, and he's going to record her response as well. And of course here, Sarah's response appears to rise to the level of unbelief because God calls her on it. And she's thinking, she hears the conversation. Maybe she's not even seen the guys, but she hears what's going on. And she is told again that she, at 90, is going to bear a child. And you can imagine, if you're in her shoes, this thing is impossible. There's no way I'm going to have a son or a child. This is way too late for that. I think she'd already buried her hopes. So someone out front sitting with Abe, who's 100, close, 99, this just doesn't sound feasible. And so she laughs to herself, the text says, and like Abraham, says something that sounds very similar. You know, am I going to have pleasure in my Lord? I'm old, he's old, not happening. And God calls her on it. God hears that quiet laughter by the way, just like Hagar back in chapter 16, you know, call your son Ishmael, God hears. God heard crying. God heard a plea for help from Hagar and Ishmael. And here God hears Sarah's laughter in unbelief as she's hidden there behind the tent curtain. Nobody's out from God's view. And God reproves her and says, is anything too difficult for me? Now, this is another humorous element of this story to me. Sarah's behind the tent. This is just like a play. I mean, you'd script a play just like this, you know. She's off stage. She listens to the conversation. She laughs. And God says to Abram, not to Sarah, to Abram, why did she laugh? Calling her out on it. And Sarah says off stage, oh, but I didn't laugh. But you did, God says. So first, she hears this incredible claim, and she can't believe God. And then she's embarrassed because God's found her out, and so she lies. You know, she's in a hole, and then she digs another level deeper. And I do think it's important to put yourself in Sarah's shoes for just a second to think about how this feels. You know, God invites Jews to remember how it felt to be strangers. I'm inviting you to put yourself in Sarah's shoes. Somebody tells you something that just sounds too good to believe, and you don't believe it. And then they call you on it, and you're embarrassed. You feel ashamed. You feel squirrely. You're just trying to get out of this, right? And so you lie. No, no, oh, no, oh, no. <laughs> I didn't say that. No, you misunderstood me. 
You misunderstood my words or my actions. Oh no, that's not it. I mean, you can you can imagine you're just trying to cover your tracks and get out, right? Minimize damage here, minimize embarrassment. And in this case, of course, the person she's interacting with is God Himself. So she doesn't believe. Then she lies. She's embarrassed. She's found out. This sort of reminds me of John 8, the woman caught in adultery. I'm suddenly exposed in my sin and my shame. How will God treat me? Now, sometimes we blow it like Sarah, and sometimes we're on the other end like the Lord is here in this equation. So how does God treat Sarah when she laughs in unbelief and then she lies? How does God treat her? You know, does he cut her off and say, well, you had your chance and so I'm going to give this son to Abraham by somebody else? Or does he make her crawl across, you know, the hot afternoon desert floor and humiliate herself, humble herself and, and beg for forgiveness? I mean, she's called out. She's embarrassed. She lies. There's, there's no doubt about any of this. And what does God do? One thing, he does call her on it. And I don't want to minimize that. He calls her on it. But what does he do? He gives her the son he promised. And men call her blessed today. And this is one of the reasons I love this story. You know, we typically read back, we're always the heroes in the stories, aren't we? But really, when God looks at us, I think probably most of the time we're Sarah. We're we're not the heroes. And God does what he promised he'd do for Sarah. And besides simply stating the facts, hey, believe me. And hey, you lied. Yeah, you did say that. That's it. And it's over. And God keeps his word. And she gets the son. He brings laughter into her life. And we call her blessed to this day. I love this. God is gracious. And the God we serve is gracious and kind and merciful. I think of Martin Luther. It said, I haven't read this. It said that he was crawling on the steps in Rome trying to atone for his sins when the passage in Romans 3 quoted from Habakkuk comes to mind the just shall live by faith he, he was trying to humble himself adequately for forgiveness and God says the just shall live by faith and that's sort of what you have on display here God, God takes care of her sin and of course by the way it is her great 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 grandson Jesus the Lord Jesus who dies on the cross to cover her sin and her lie and her unbelief and her shame so that God the Father interacting with her here and now in this story, it's okay. Your sins are covered. They're taken care of. I'm free to extend to you grace and mercy. And that's it. And he keeps his word and she gets the baby boy. And I think it's important when we're on the end where folks have erred and we're in a story in which we're in God's seat here, we want people to be able to speak the truth. We want them, sometimes it's, it's necessary to make restitution. This isn't always the same. But this willingness on God's part to simply forgive and bless as He intended, this is no small thing. God is graciously extending favor to Sarah here, even and maybe especially when she blows it. I'm not praising unbelief and God's not condoning lying, but... 
the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and the kindness of God are on display along with Abraham's hospitality. I want to mention here too something just briefly in passing. And sorry, I'll wind down quickly. Uh, total tangent, sort of. But in 1 Peter 3, 5, uh, we've been in Peter recently in Sunday school and in Kent's teaching because we were talking about authority. And 1 Peter 3 describes a wife and a husband's responsibility towards each other. <clears throat> in verse 5 in 1 Peter 3, when Peter is admonishing Christian wives to show submission and support to their husbands, taking the lowly spot, as it were, being submitted to their husbands, Peter says, In this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, that's this text we're in this morning, calling him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Two things here. One, Sarah blew it in the story. There's no question. But when God wants to display an example of godly, wifely submission, he picks up Sarah. So even though she blew it in this story, she was characterized by faithfulness to Abraham. And God doesn't highlight her sin or her failure 2,000 years later. He highlights her faith. So she's the example for gals today of a great wife with a great attitude. I love this. God highlighted what she was characterized by, not the odd miss step you see in this story. The other thing is this. 2,000 years after this story, when God wants to write through Peter's pen about the attitude of a wife to her husband... It's this verse in Genesis, verse 12, chapter 18, that Peter picks. And you know he picks it? Because of one word. She called Abraham Lord. And that's why this statement is here. It's one word in this, in this uh, sentence and in this chapter. And for that one word, God reaches back 2,000 years to this story and brings this up in 1 Peter 3 as an example for wives. And the reason I'm saying this is this. If you can't guess where I'm going, read your Bible. And don't just read the Sermon on the Mount and Psalm 23. Read the Old Testament. Read Genesis, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Guys, one sentence that God gives us is better than all the literary works of men. God can speak in a word, a single word. In verse 12, is pulled out 2,000 years later. And this was something she said to herself. This isn't even something she spoke out loud for others to hear. She wasn't calling Abraham Lord to put this on display. She said this to herself. And God picks that word out and brings that up 2,000 years later and says, hey guys, this is what I'm after. I love this. And you see things like this if you're in the Scriptures. If you're turning those passages you're reading over in your mind. If you're chewing on them and thinking about them again. Or memorizing them. If you're making them your own, you see all kinds of stuff that others don't. Just because we're not paying attention. So Sarah's exalted in First Peter. And this one word God pulls out 2,000 years later to say, Hey gals, this is what I'm talking about. The last thing I just point out is God says in verse 14, is anything too difficult for the Lord? Another very brief story in Jeremiah 32. Um, 
In Jeremiah's day, if you've read Jeremiah, you know he's a prophet that, that lives through uh, God's judgments on Judah, the southern kingdom. And uh, he is part of the captivity process. Je- uh, Jeremiah sees the destruction of Jerusalem and Judah by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And in Zedekiah's 10th year, Zedekiah didn't like what Jeremiah had been saying. Hey, God's given the city over. your history. You're toast. And so he throws him in prison. And while Jeremiah's in prison, God says to him, Hey, your relative's going to come. He's going to offer you a piece of ground. And I want you to buy it. I want you to do everything legally. I want you to sign the documents. I want you to seal them up. I want you to preserve them. Now understand this. Everybody's looking out. They're in a city that's under siege. It'll be toast in less than two years. All the outlying areas belong to Babylon. And God tells Jeremiah, I want you to buy that piece of ground out there. Why? This would be like if I uh, burn my car up and say, Hey, could, would you like to buy my car? If you know a flood is going to come and cover the farmland that I want to sell you, and hey, hey, great deal here on some farmland, Jerry. And the flood's going, No, thanks. But see, the deal in Jeremiah's day is God says, Hey, you're toast. I told you this would happen in Deuteronomy. If you didn't keep my covenant, I'm going to kick you out of the land. But while all you can see is doom and destruction, the king's armies are out there, the city is surrounded, they occupy all the rest of the land, and you know that Babylon is going to rule over this land, I'm telling you just as surely, what you can't see is I'm going to keep my promise, and after a 70-year captivity, I'm going to bring you back. And that land you bought, it'll still be there. And you can transfer title. In other words, in Jeremiah's day, the promise in the midst of destruction was about a future deliverance back to the land that seemed too good to be true. So Jeremiah, and by the way, all this is spoken for the benefit of King Zedekiah. It's all for his benefit. All he can see is destruction. And through Jeremiah, God tells him, you're going to survive this. And you're going to live in Babylon. And And your people are going to be delivered back to the land, even though it seems like an impossibility today. Based on what you can see, and on your power and your ability to carry something off, couldn't happen. But I'm here to tell you, Jeremiah, buy that piece of land, because it'll have value again. Because I'm going to redeem my people and bring them back into the land. Nothing is too difficult for Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who comes down on Sinai in smoke and thunder. And the God who comes down in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ dies on the cross for our sins to redeem us back to himself. You talk about impossibilities. A holy God being reconciled with sinners. That is an impossibility. Couldn't be done. None of us could do it. And if we had to come up with a means of reconciling ourselves to a God who's perfectly holy, cannot stand the appearance of sin in any way, shape, or form, we're toast. We're history. Most of us don't recognize that, and that's why we hold our salvation lightly. Or that's why others don't come to Christ, because they don't realize the unbelievable danger they face. This was an impossibility. Mankind's redemption was an impossibility, except for a holy God who takes on humanity himself and bridges that gap. So if we had eyes to see as pagans, and we know who and what God is, we'd say we're toast. And we have no hope of redemption. And Yahweh says, God comes down in the person of His Son, the Lord Jesus, dies on the cross for our sins and makes the impossible possible because nothing's too difficult for Him. That's the God we live and serve. Let me close with this very brief story. 
How many angels have you entertained lately? True story, there was a guy over 100 years ago. He was in a foreign land. He was a stranger in a foreign land. And he was in big trouble. And people were chasing him down. And he goes to a town. He's worn out. He didn't have anything to eat, nothing to drink. He's in a hostile territory. He doesn't know where to go. He doesn't know what to do. He prays, literally. He prays. God help me. And he goes to a house. He didn't know the people in it. He figures anybody... There's a price on his head, by the way. Everybody in the whole area knows this guy's on the loose. And there's a reward if you catch him and turn him in. And he's beside himself. He doesn't know what else to do. He goes up to a house. He doesn't know anything about it. He knocks on the door just because he needs help. He needs something to eat. He needs something to drink. And the people bring him in and they feed him. And they give him something to drink. And they tell him, this is the only house in this town to which you could have come. And you would have been given any hospitality. Anyone else would have turned you in. <clears throat> the man was Winston Churchill. And this was the Boer War in the 1900s. And he was a war correspondent who had escaped from prison. And there was a price on his head. And just think of this. This family, I don't even know their name. This unknown family from South Africa showed hospitality to a stranger. And this guy becomes, frankly, one of the key links in the freedom of the Western world in World War II. And if they hadn't been willing to show hospitality to a stranger, remember, they were putting themselves on the line by doing so. If they hadn't shown hospitality to a stranger, you could probably make a pretty strong point that England may not have stood world, in World War II. Someone showed hospitality to someone they didn't know and they were putting themselves on the line to do so. And God saved Winston Churchill. And he went on to become one of those key links in world history that helped preserve freedom in the West. It's remarkable. So whether you think they're angels or not, most of us don't look angelic, by the way. But if we're just willing to entertain strangers, Jesus says that's what's typical of those who enter his kingdom. And he says in Luke 7, that's what's typical of those that he shows forgiveness to and those who receive forgiveness are thankful. So we can take some clues from Abraham, not just for his faith, but for his hospitality. And if you think of how you impact others in the world today, for the church, for Jesus, for in any way positive, I would just say go back to the second commandment. Treat others the way you'd want to be treated. This would be a great church growth policy for lion and lamb. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that we were strangers to your kindness. Paul says in Ephesians, we were without God and without hope. And Lord, you did the impossible. You spanned the chasm from heaven to earth. You covered our sins in the death of your son, Abraham's heir, Sarah's great-grandson, Lord. Lord, we all like they have feet of clay, and we rejoice and thank you that you've covered our sins through the blood of your son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. And Lord... We look forward to entertaining angels and strangers in your name. We look forward, Lord, ultimately to that great wedding celebration we face with you. In Jesus' name, amen.